with that, we're going to dive into God's word. If you have your Bibles, you can grab them and you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. Now, just a little housekeeping before we dive in. Um, We have been in our series in the book of Genesis uh, for a few uh, months now, and we're really studying verse by verse through this first book of the Bible. And one of the most fascinating, and if you've been with us, you know, one of the most wild books of the Bible. Um, Now, because of the hailstorm a few weeks ago, we had to cancel service, and that got us caught up a little bit off kilter. And so last week, Pastor Dave Barnes, he finished up, I believe, Genesis chapter 16. So uh, I had already been prepping for this, and so I was like, can we just swap weeks around? So we're going to go a little bit out of order. Uh, But this story... Um, is, is a little bit of a, of a standalone story that you're going to see tonight. Uh, and then uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to just continue uh, studying about Abraham and the life of Abraham. Uh, but tonight we're going to study a really interesting, a really heavy, a really fascinating, and uh, I believe that you're going to discover, even though it is heavy, a hopeful story. Um, and it is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And honestly, it's one of the darkest one of the most discouraging, one of the heaviest stories that we find in the entire Bible. And I'm just going to kind of give you a spoiler alert and set the stage for it right now. In fact, uh, we were in our team meeting this morning, and Pastor Steve, uh, who is our children's pastor and family pastor, and it, it, like I think if you look up like the joy of the Lord in the dictionary, Pastor Steve Ritter kind of embodies the joy of the Lord. And so we were praying this morning, and he prayed, and he's like, God, I don't really know you know, what we're talking about tonight, Wednesday night, but I just pray everybody will just have so much fun tonight. (laughs) And after the prayer time, I was like, I don't know if tonight's the night for so much fun, okay? We're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. So I I don't know. I don't know. If you came for fun, it may not be the right thing, but if you came to really be encouraged in God's word and learn more about God, I think you did come to the right place. And so uh, we're going to dive in. I want to give you just a brief recap and catch you up. The first 11 chapters of Genesis really sets the tone uh, for the entire history of the world. And then starting in chapter 12, we meet a character that really is going to be essential for the rest of the Bible, which is uh, the character of Abraham. Uh, God makes three promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a great land. And through you, everyone on the earth is going to be blessed. And really, the whole rest of the Bible is God fulfilling that, and ultimately that's fulfilled through Jesus. But God fulfills his promises sometimes much more slowly than we would like, and so the whole Bible is really us, uh, God unpacking that promise and moving that promise forward. And so uh, even last week, uh, we discovered that Abraham really took matters a bit into his own hands. He was getting impatient with God, and he was trying to push the agenda with God. And so uh, he and Sarah came up with a plan uh, that wasn't God's plan. They uh, tried to kind of force God's hand, uh, and we learned about Hagar. We learned about Ishmael last week. Now, this week, what we're going to discover is that uh, God, he has um, had this. uh, So I'm just going to back up for a minute into Genesis 18. In Genesis 18, verse 1, uh, God appears to Abraham, and he has two men with him, two angels with him. And they have a whole conversation, which you'll learn about in a couple weeks. And their conversation is really about the birth of Isaac, this promised son. But what we're going to discover tonight is that when God goes to meet Abraham, he has another motive. And we're going to discover that motive tonight. And we're going to start in verse 16 of Genesis chapter 18. 
16 of Genesis chapter 18. And uh, I'm going to pray one more time, and then we're going to dive in. God, uh, we just come before you, and we just ask you to speak to us through your word. Uh, Lord, it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So please help us. Uh, Please show us what you need to show us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, God and two angels have visited Abraham, and this is a very unique because uh, Abraham really saw a, an appearance of God as if he was a man. Many people believe that this was a, a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Jesus. And so what we see here in verse 16 is this. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them and went to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is just and right, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what has promised him. So what we see is that the Lord and these two angels They have spent some time with Abraham. You'll learn about that in a couple weeks. And now they get up to leave and Abraham goes with them. And what we discover is that God makes this interesting statement to himself, which he says, I want to reveal to Abraham what I'm about to do. I want to bring Abraham into my plans. And if you read in the book of Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8, Abraham is called a friend of God. And God is saying, Abraham, you're my friend. I'm going to reveal to you my plans. Now, I believe there's an application point for us in this passage. What we discover throughout Scripture is that God reveals his plans. He reveals his will. He reveals his heart to the people that he loves. And so for you and for me, there may be a lot of things that we would like to know from God. But there are also a lot of things that we do know from God. When we get a chance to read his word, we are listening to his plans. We are listening to his heart. We are listening to his will. And we actually, as a church, as Christians, we have direction. Right now we are living in the church age. And so God's plan at this time in history is to save and disciple as many people as possible. So if, if God were uh, right, walking to us right now and talking to us, God would say, I believe that there is coming a day of judgment. And we're going to learn a little bit more about judgment in just a moment. But he's saying right now is the time for you, the church, to spread my message, to go into all the world and carry the gospel to the ends of the earth, to make disciples and to tell people about my hope and about my goodness. And so that is God revealing his heart to us. We're going to keep reading, though. Look with me at verse 20. It says this, the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. And we read in verse 22, the men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Now, this location geographically is taking place in the south of Israel, and Abraham is in the southern part of Israel, and he's north of the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea 
is in fact the lowest place on earth in terms of uh, its, its relation to sea level. It's uh, thousands of feet below sea level. And so you need to realize that every place around the Dead Sea is above the Dead Sea. You can't get any lower, okay? And so what, what, what we realize is that Abraham, where he has his camp, he, he's looking down, and he sees in the plain of the Dead Sea, he sees the city of Sodom, and he sees the city of Gomorrah. And what God has said is that he has heard and he has seen reports of the wickedness of these two cities. And so the first thing that we learn about these two cities from this passage is they are incredibly wicked. We're going to learn more about just how wicked they are as we continue to read. But God is saying they're incredibly wicked, and I'm going down to inspect, and I'm going to judge based on what I find. Now, we must realize God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. And so really, as God is communicating to Abraham, I'm going down to see, he already knows, but he's helping Abraham understand that he's going down to observe what is happening. Verse 23, it says this, Then Abraham approached him, and he said, Will you spare, will you sweep away the, the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? Now, here's what's interesting. The the background is that there are people that Abraham cares about in the city of Sodom and in the city of Gomorrah. Earlier in Genesis, Abraham and his nephew Lot, uh, they got into a disagreement, or rather, uh, their herdsmen got into a disagreement, and so they made a decision that they were going to split up. And Abraham, uh, being incredibly noble, gave Lot the opportunity to choose where he wanted to, to take his family and to take his vast riches, his herds. And Lot looked down, and he saw this, the plains and the, the agriculture around Sodom and Gomorrah what was very in, in, interesting to him, and he believed that it could cause him great wealth, and so he chose that. And Abraham knew in Sodom, it is very wicked, but the people that I love are there. And so what we're going to see over the next few verses, and I'm going to read a big chunk of scripture here, but what we're going to see is that Abraham is actually interceding with God because he is concerned for the people that he loves in that city. Look at verse 25. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now stay with me. We're going to read a little bit here. Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous people is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, the Lord said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him, what if there are only 40 found there? And he said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. I love this. Abraham just goes back to the well one more time. Let's try again. He said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said this, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? And he said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, may the Lord 
not be angry, but let me speak just once more. How many have kids and they're like, can I just have four M&Ms? <laughs> okay, if you're going to let me have four, like what's, what's five? Give me five. <laughs> then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Now, what we're going to see over the next few moments is a very sad and a very heavy reality, which is that when God went to inspect these cities, that he could not even find 10 people in these cities that feared him. And we're going to come back in a, at the end of our teaching, and we're going to look at this conversation that Abraham had with God. But really, th this story, in order for us to kind of make sense of it, I want to look at three different characters. I want to look at the character of God. I want to look at the character of Lot. And I want to look at the character of Abraham. First, I want to ask the question about God. And we're going to examine God in this story. I want to ask the question, and really the, the title of my teaching tonight is this. What does God do about the evil in the world? I don't know if you've ever thought this question, if you've ever looked out at the world and you've seen all of the brokenness, you've seen all of the sin, you've seen all of the corruption and all of the perversion, and you've thought to yourself, God, why don't you do something about this? Maybe you've had someone hurt you. Maybe you've had uh, someone hurt your family, and maybe you've experienced uh, the, the pain of having someone do something unjust to you and having the pain of not having someone to defend you. And you've thought, God, I, I, why aren't you there? Why don't you care? Well, well, this passage really answers for us the question, what does God do about the evil that we see in the world? And really, I think that we can discover three things from this passage, and we can discover three things about the character of God as we look at this passage in the context of Scripture. The first thing that I think we can learn about this passage and about what God does and how God relates to the evil in the world is this. How does God view evil in culture? Number one, God sees it. God sees it. I think one of the interesting verses we see in verse 20 uh, God speaks to Abraham and he says, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see it and see if what is done is as bad as the outcry. So God hears what is happening and God sees what is happening. The scripture is consistent with this truth that God sees sin and he is especially, he sees sin that is committed against uh, people who, who are, uh, pe he, he sees sin that is committed against uh, people, uh, other people. And so if someone is oppressing someone else, if, if there's a, a poor person and someone is taking advantage of them, if someone is hurting someone who is needy, God sees that. Psalm chapter 10 verse 17 on the screen says this, O Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The scripture talks about the fact that when innocent blood is shed, when people hurt other people, God sees it. The first murder that ever happened in Genesis chapter 4, if you've been studying with us, you remember it. It says this, the Lord said to Cain, listen, 
Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God hears and God sees when wickedness and when sin is committed. And so uh, really there's two application points here for us. The first one is this, that if you feel like people are getting away with things, whether globally, whether nationally, or whether personally, you feel like people are hurting you or you're worried about the evil in the world, this passage reminds us that God does see what is happening. But, but this passage also reminds us that if we ha- have sinned, if we are hiding sin, if we are managing sin, if we are kind of have this side thing going on that we feel like God doesn't see, and even if we've been getting away with it for a long time, we're reminded that, that we're not really getting away with it, that God is being patient with us, that God is hoping we will turn back to him, but we see in this passage that God sees sin. The second thing that we learn about how God responds and how God views evil is this, that God will judge evil. How does God view evil in culture? God will judge evil. Now, it's important for us to to understand this context. And uh, if you look at verse 25, Abraham, he says this, will not the judge of the earth do what is just? From this text, what we can learn is this. Number one, God is the judge of the earth. And number two, as judge, he will judge perfectly. He will judge justly. So so let's talk about God for a second. Why does God get to be judge? Well, first off, God is the creator. Uh, Anyone who speaks life into existence, anyone who can create the universe by the word of his power, gets to be in charge. You know? And, And the moment you and I can do it, we can make the rules. But, but until that happens, he's going to be the one who's in charge. But not only is God creator, but he is also the giver of life. He is the sustainer of life. And what we see in scripture is that even the very breath we breathe is a gift from God. And so because God has created everything, because God sustains us, he has the uh, moral and he has the judicial authority to direct what is right and to direct what is wrong. Now, what's interesting is that, that oftentimes, uh, even those who are Christians in our current uh, culture, when we hear that God uh, has the ability to be judged, it almost hits our ears wrong. I think a lot of times we can hear this and be like, Brian, 1749 called, it wants its theology back, okay? This is the modern times. We don't talk about God being a judge. And in fact, our culture has flipped it, and we are the ones who are now judging God. God, I'll judge you. I'll decide what I like and what I don't like from your word. But but I would just like to push back for a second, and I would like us to think about this. Even if you're here tonight, and and you do think in your heart, honestly, I don't like the fact that God is judge. I would would rather him not be the judge. I, I would actually like to suggest that there is a small part of us that each one of us desires for there to be a judge. Because as we look out at the evil in the world, and and all of us can admit the world is broken, you you don't have to be a follower of Christ to look out and be like, something's wrong here. Like like some, some things are happening that shouldn't be happening. Like we are very polarized. 
There are people in our country who are on very different sides of the aisle, but I don't know anyone who's like, it seems to all be going really well. And so with our culture that is so polarized, each person, wherever they're at on the political spectrum, wherever they're at on the sociological spectrum, everyone is saying someone should fix this. Us saying someone should fix this is us saying we need a righteous judge to do something about it. Here's the problem. We all like our opinion. We would all like the judge to be exactly on our side. It's like, God, I'm cool if you're judge as long as you judge all the rest of y'all, okay? Because I don't like when you judge me specifically, and that's our perspective on things. And so what I think that we must realize is, yes, there is a part of all of us that wants God to be judge, but I think we have to be honest enough about ourselves to say, okay, if, if I want God to judge everyone else, maybe I also am I'm under the judgment of God. Now, As followers of Jesus, here's the good news. God has already judged us because our judgment happened at the cross. When you and I put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, when Jesus said, it is finished, when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, God was judging our sin at that moment. And so we can be grateful that we do not have to endure the judgment of God or to endure the wrath of God. But we must realize that there will come a day when God will judge evil that's in the world. That day is coming. And moments like Sodom and Gomorrah remind us that that day is coming. But then number three, how does God view evil in culture? Number three, we have to realize this, that God loves the world. That God loves the world. There's a really interesting story that's in the Bible that is a opposite of this story. And it's the story of Jonah, who was a prophet to the city of Nineveh. God sent Jonah to Nineveh. And to give you a very, very brief summary for the sake of time, Jonah went to Nineveh. And God said, if you do not repent, I will, in fact, judge Nineveh. And I will, uh, I will pour out my wrath on Nineveh. And what we see is that there is actually an opposite reaction in Nineveh. The entire city repents. There is revival. There is spiritual awakening. And God shows mercy. And in fact, what's fascinating is Jonah, the prophet of God, gets upset and angry at God because of how gracious he is to the sinners in Nineveh. And this is God's response to that. Jonah 4.11, he says this, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and much cattle. Now, now this is the last verse in Jonah, and it's so fascinating because what we see is the heart of God is so compassionate that when God thinks about judgment, he will judge, but he doesn't love to judge. And when he thinks about it, he even has compassion for the cattle in the city. He's like, there's 120,000 people, but I don't even want to judge the cows. That's how much God loves, and that's how much God's heart is for people. We read in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So Jesus took the full width of God's judgment on the cross so that when we accept him, we don't have to receive his judgment. We get his mercy and his love. 
So the question is, how much does God respect you? He gives you free will to accept and to reject him. How much does God love you? He loves you enough to send Jesus, his own son, to die so that we could have life. But God does not tolerate evil, and he will judge evil. So God sees it, he judges it, but he wants all of us to accept his love and his grace and his mercy. Now, we're going to keep going because we're going to learn about what happens in the city of Sodom. So the scene has changed. We're leaving Abraham in his viewpoint of Sodom, his camp above Sodom. And now we're going to cut to the two angels and they're walking into Sodom. Verse 1 of chapter 19, it says this, The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening. And Lot, that's Abraham's nephew, was sitting in the gateway of the city. And when he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the city square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, breaking bread without yeast, and they ate. Now, a couple things about this. First off, uh, the angels enter Sodom by a city gate. The city gate would have been a place of great prominence in the city. So what we learn here is Lot isn't just living in the city. Lot is respected in the city. He, he actually is, is, is viewed in a high regard in the city. And Lot really extends hospitality to these angels. Now, uh, that culture was a very hospitable culture. It would have been very rude for him to actually be like, all right, cool, go spend the night in the square. But we're going to find out that Lot is actually concerned for them because he realizes and recognizes how evil the city of Sodom actually is. And we're going to discover that right now. Verse 4, it said this, Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came with you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. So what we see is that there is this incredible perversion in the city of Sodom. And we really do see how dark and how demonic this city had become. That, that when uh, these two men came, there was an awareness throughout the city and there was a unified plan to do this horrible act. And, and we see here that in verse 6, let's keep going. It said, Lot went outside to meet them and to shut the door behind them. And he said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. What a horrible thing. But don't do anything to these men before they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break the door. Verse 10, but the men reached inside and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. So as I said at the beginning, what we see here is truly one of the two or three darkest scenes that you can find in the entire Bible. Absolutely horrific. 
Now, there's a really interesting verse that we read in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to put it on the screen. Because it actually gives commentary on Lot and on his perspective living in Sodom. And it says this, and to be honest, um, I think that Peter is giving Lot a lot of credit based on what we just read. I think Peter is definitely looking at the glass half full. But he says, yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and he heard day after day. So here's the interesting thing. What we see is that Lot, he chose to live in the city of Sodom, and he was at least in some way trying to follow after the Lord God. But his soul was so tormented because of the evil of the city. But, but I think we discover a really interesting principle here, uh, that Lot, he continually made decisions to get closer and closer to Sodom. And so we might say that Lot was saved, but he was not living a joyful life that comes with truly following Christ. He's on the fence. He's, in the, he's not in the world, but he's not on fire for the kingdom either. And so what we have to realize here is that Lot, uh, he's a compromised Christian. He, he is someone that, that, yes, he believes in God, but he's allowing such influences of evil in his life that it is affecting him, and we're going to see as we continue to move forward, it's going to affect his family as well. Look at verse 12 with me. The, the two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So, so the angels are warning and they're saying, you need to escape because this whole thing is coming down to the ground. Find anyone that you love and get out of here. There aren't 10 righteous people in the city. We're bringing it to the ground. Now notice this. It says in verse 14, so Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-laws. Where did he go? So what's happening outside right now? A really terrible thing is happening. So what we see is that Lot is compromised so much that the two men that he is allowing to marry his two daughters are caught up in horrible and horrific perversion. Now listen, I, I, don't, I have two sons. I don't have two daughters, or I don't have any daughters, but I would like to think that I would have a little more of a higher standard for the men who would marry my potential daughters than that, Amen. And so we see that Lot's compromise has not only affected him, it's also affected his family. We see this, verse 15, but the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. And when he hesitated, the men grasped his hands and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful on him. Even at the last moment, Lot's heart was torn between Sodom and between the Lord his God. As soon as they had brought him out, one of them said, flee for your lives, don't look back, don't stop anywhere in the plain, flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes and you've shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. 
Look, here is a town near enough to run to. It is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. And he said to him, very well. I will grant this request to you. I will not overthrow the town that you speak of. But flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. This is why the town was called Zoar. And by the time Lot had reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. So remember I told you that uh, today we're going to talk about three different characters in our story. We've talked about God and how God views and judges evil. I want to take a moment now and I want us to examine uh, the character of Lot for a minute. And we've already been talking about him and we've recognized Lot as what we might call a compromised Christian. As someone who has one foot in the world, one part of his heart in the world, and one part of his heart that's connected to God. And I want to offer a suggestion to us, a point of application that we can take and we can put in our lives to really apply. And it's this, you can write it down. That that you and I, we don't want to be like Lot. We don't want to drift towards Sodom. What I want to do is I want to suggest to us tonight that the story of Lot being so compromised, putting his family in such a terrible place where they are in danger of judgment, where they are in danger of shipwrecking and ruining uh, their lives, didn't start five minutes before the angels arrived. But because we got to realize that our choices, especially our choices as parents, especially our choices as fathers and husbands, we got to realize our choices don't just affect us, they affect our whole families. And what hurts, what we think may just be harmless for us is actually going to affect everyone that is in our influence. But I would suggest that once again, it didn't happen five minutes before the angels arrived. And if we look back at the story of Genesis, we're going to discover a couple of things. I have three scriptures on the screen and we're going to look at it. Verse 12 of chapter 13, several uh, chapters before, we learn that Lot lived among the plains of the city and pitched his tents near Sodom. So, So in this moment, Lot is not in Sodom. Lot is near Sodom. In chapter 14, we learn, oh, Lot's not near Sodom anymore. Lot is living in Sodom. And then in chapter 19, we just read that Lot is sitting in the gateway of Sodom. So Lot went from kind of near a bad environment to in a bad environment to having a place of honor in that bad environment. Can I tell you something? That uh, no one wakes up one day and just decides, I'm going to shipwreck my whole family. No one makes the decision that they never thought they would make out of the blue. It is a series of small compromises, and it is a drift. We don't run towards Sodom. We drift towards Sodom. And what I would say is that the best way that you and I can stop drifting is by making sure that we are connected to a local church family that's going to help us stay connected to God. You see, Jesus never called solo Christians. Jesus never called one person to be a follower of Jesus by themselves. He always called people into a family. 
And when we are in a family, every week what we get to do is we get to gather together. We get to hear his word. We get to be redirected. And instead of making subtle compromises, when we sit under the teaching of God's word, when we gather together, when we worship, we're actually making subtle upgrades because the Holy Spirit is moving in our lives and the Holy Spirit is helping us get closer to him. And so instead of drifting towards Sodom, as we are connected to a group of Christians who help us grow, we're actually advancing more and more towards what God is calling for us. And listen, I know that for most of us, I am preaching to the choir here because we are committed to being here and to being connected. But maybe there are some of us here that that you're tempted to kind of do it solo. You're tempted to just check in and check out. Or, Or maybe you're like Lot, And maybe you're not quite yet in that place where you are in great danger, but you're kind of like in chapter 13 where you're living near Sodom. You're like, yeah, some bad decisions are on the horizon, but I think I can manage things. Man, we don't want to get as close to the line as we possibly can get. We want to make sure that that we are pursuing holiness. We don't want to risk it. I believe that God puts stories like this in Scripture to give us a fear of God, to give us a desire to serve him, to give us a a knowledge of of how he views evil. All right, we're going to keep reading, and we're going to wrap up this story. Look with me at verse 24, and it says this. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. From the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Remember, the angel said, Don't look back, run forward. Once again, the compromise that we make doesn't just affect us. Early in the morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like the smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Now, as we wrap things up, I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about the city of Sodom, and I want to talk about Abraham. Let's talk first about the city of Sodom. What's interesting is that for many, many years, uh, people who are critical of the Bible said that Sodom and Gomorrah did not exist, and this was simply uh, a, a fairy tale. This was simply a, a sort of a parable that was given to really warn uh, people. It was just a, a story made up in the Bible. But over the past uh, 50 to 100 years, archaeologists have been studying the Bible and they have been digging all around the Dead Sea. And I want to just read you a little bit of an article that I found. Uh, and it says this, new research finds that a powerful airburst from a meteor colliding with the atmosphere may have wiped out a Bronze Age civilization along the north side of the Dead Sea some 3,700 years ago. Many believe that the same place was once known as Sodom. Yes, as in Sodom and Gomorrah from the Bible. 
Archaeologist Philip J. Silva of Trinity Southwest University has been working with a team that has been excavating the site for 13 years. Samples from the site show that an extremely hot, explosive event leveled an area of almost 200 square miles, not only wiping out 100% of middle-aged bronze cities and towns, but also stripping agricultural soil from once fertile fields. Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, This was published as a peer-reviewed paper in a scientific journal. And multiple times, scientists criticized and asked for it to be peer-reviewed again because they couldn't believe that the data lined up so closely to the scriptural story. And so it has actually been peer-reviewed multiple times because people doubt and they can't believe it. And what's funny is that Back a few hundred years ago, people were saying Sodom and Gomorrah never existed. Now the narrative is this crazy event happened, and then later people just decided that must have been a good sort of parable to use for Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the the narrative is always changing. But, But I want to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah for just one second, because what's interesting is throughout the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah is used as an example of an incredibly sinful city. Now, we saw one example of that wickedness, and it was a horrible act where uh, men wanted to commit these lewd and horrible acts with other men, not only uh, just one person, but a a whole uh, group of people colluding to do that. But we see that throughout uh, Scripture, there are other reasons why Sodom and Gomorrah were viewed as wicked and evil. Uh, The scripture lists that sexual perversion was happening, that pride was happening, that greed was happening, and that they neglected the poor. And so this truly was a city that had completely rejected God. Now, this is the crazy thing. Multiple times, Jesus references Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says that although we saw a picture of God's judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah, that towns and cities that rejected him and that rejected his work will actually fare worse on the judgment day than Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, yes, these are sins that the Bible speaks out against and that the Bible says are terrible sins. But what we discover is there is one sin that is worse than any other. And what is that sin? That sin is rejecting Jesus and rejecting his work. Because you see that no matter what you've done, maybe when you heard me read that list, you started to get afraid because you realized, I've done some of those things. But here's the good news, that Christ can forgive those sins. There is nothing that we can do as far as sin that is too far from the grace of God, except to continually over and over again reject his offer of grace. And if we reject it and we reject it and we reject it and we die in that hard-heartedness, that is the ultimate worst possible sin because it is the sin that cannot be forgiven. And so we learn about Sodom. But I want to talk for a minute as we close about Abraham. And I think that we can learn three things about Abraham, and I will move through them quickly, that will really help us tonight. We as Christians... We do live in an evil culture. Maybe as you have been reading this story, you have been reflecting and you've been thinking, sometimes it feels like I am living in Sodom. And maybe unlike Lot, 
Um, I, I can't escape it. I'm bombarded by these things that are uh, keeping, that, that are really uh, distracting me from my relationship with God. I'm bombarded by temptation and I'm bombarded by distraction. How do we live like Abraham as a righteous man, as a righteous woman in the midst of a culture that is, frankly, evil? Well, I believe that we can learn three things from Abraham. The first thing is this, that we must fall in love with the presence of God. We must fall in love with the presence of God. You're going to see this in a couple weeks when Pastor Dave Barnes teaches the beginning of this story. But what we see is that this story happened, remember, with God visiting Abraham, visiting the camp of Abraham. And what we see at the beginning of this story is that Abraham, believe it or not, recognizes God when he visits. And what that tells me about Abraham is this, that he knew who God was, that he was familiar with God's voice, that he was familiar with God's presence. And I want to tell you that the greatest practice that you can put in your life is to fall in love with the presence of God, to love reading his word, to love prayer, to love being in worship with fellow believers, to, to love uh, and to know that he is walking with you, to learn how to hear his voice. And so often when people th think about, uh, when Christians talk about the struggles that they have in life, when they talk about, man, I'm, I'm struggling with this sin, I'm struggling with that sin, I'm struggling with this temptation, I'm struggling with that addiction. Listen, there are, there are things that we have to do to fight the flesh. We have to fight against temptation. We have to fight against sin in our lives. But the greatest weapon that we can possibly use is falling more in love with Christ. And yes, I want you to hate sin, but I believe the greatest way to hate sin is to fall more in love with Jesus. The old song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his glorious face, and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so the more that you and I grow in our love of Christ, the more that you and I grow in our love of his word, the more we're not going to be interested in sin. We're not going to be interested in temptation because we've experienced the real thing, which is a relationship with Christ. It's what you were made for. Fall in love with the presence of God. The second thing that we see here and that I believe you and I can learn from Abraham as we think about how to live in a culture that has truly turned its back on God is this, to pray for mercy. To pray for mercy. You know, I love the story of Abraham because I think you see the heart of Abraham. Abraham was called a friend of God and I believe one of the reasons Abraham was a friend of God is because he had incredible faith in God. But I believe another reason is that he had this heart to say, I don't want to see judgment happen. And, and I believe that God himself does not prefer judgment. God prefers grace. God prefers mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so when we're praying and we're praying mercy for our family, when we're praying mercy for our friends, when we're praying mercy for our community, we're actually partnering with God and we're saying, God, we want what you want we don't want people to, to perish. We don't want people to reject you. We want people to turn to you. I don't have it on the screen, but 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, it talks about the fact that the Lord is, is, 
is delaying his return. The Lord is actually being patient with his return, not because he's procrastinating, not because he's forgotten about it, but because he wants more and more people to repent. It says in verse 9 of 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so for you and I, I believe one of the greatest things that we can do is we can say, God, we are praying and we are asking you to save our family members, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors. And we keep talking to them about Jesus, talking to him about his love, talking to him about his mercy, because we want to see them come to know him. In this passage, this, this story of Sodom and Gomorrah truly pulls back the veil for us, and it reveals to us these are the stakes. We're not just playing around here. This isn't just like, ah, yeah, it's kind of a slightly better life, but either way works. No, no, when we see the judgment of God, we realize how desperately we need the mercy of God, and we realize how desperately our city, our state, our world, our country need the mercy of God as well. You know, I think a lot of Christians, they think about, man, it'd be great to see God judge some evil. But then I think when we actually see it happen, we have compassion, and we have love, and we start to realize, man, I don't want to see that happen to my loved ones. I read about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and as horrible as they were and as perverse as they were, I, I think about the people in my life that, that don't know the Lord, or I even think about people in my life that, that, that maybe have hurt me, and I don't want to see that happen to them. We pray for mercy. And what's beautiful is this, in verse 29, the last thing that we just read, that yes, God did destroy the cities, but it said he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe. So, so the reason in Genesis that Lot was saved is not because Lot was a rad dude. It's because Abraham was praying for mercy. Prayer is powerful. We pray for mercy. And then the last thing that we see is this, that we love our community and we tell them about Jesus. We love our community and we tell them about Jesus. And I think it's so vital for us in this time that we realize that we are in a moment of grace right now. That we are in this time period in human history where God has told his church, your mission is to go into the world. Your mission is to tell people about my love. Your mission is to invite people to come into a relationship with me. And I think that starts with us remembering the gospel. And what does the gospel say? The gospel doesn't say, you and me, us Christians are awesome. We have it figured out. We're the best. And if you kind of want to like figure it out and get with us, like you can join us. If you can like get your act together enough. That's not the gospel. The gospel says, all have sinned. The reason that we're here is not because we're amazing, because God's amazing. Man, when we look at the the horrible rebellion that happened in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, man, that's not those people. That's all of our human hearts. And when we realize, man, I need a savior. I need God to rescue me. When I turn to him, God saves me. But, but that gives me a love and that gives me a compassion for the people in my life that are far from God because I want them to meet Jesus as well. And I want to close with this. It's kind of a heavy scripture, but it is from 2 Peter. It's a commentary on the, the, 
the story that we just read, and this is how we'll wrap things up. It said, later, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. He made them an example for what will happen to ungodly people. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. As we said before, Peter is giving a very optimistic view on Lot, I think. But it says this, so you see the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping wicked people under punishment until the final day of judgment. So what do we learn from this? I believe that tonight we learn that, that God is serious about sin. And I believe we learn that we need to have a reverence for God and a reality that sin is serious. I believe that we learn tonight that the judgment and the wrath of God is not something to mess around with and that we need to take seriously the, the reality that we are living in this time where we get to preach the gospel to people and we get to invite people. But what we also learn is this, that God is mighty to save. And Christians, if you've put your faith and trust in Christ, you can have assurance that God will save you, that he will rescue you. And and man, the, the story of Lot tells me, like man, Lot didn't have too much together. Lot barely made it, okay? And, and so that gives me comfort, okay? That, that, that as we're seeking God, as we're following God, God is able to save us. God is able to rescue us. But I want us to take a moment and I just want us to pray. God, we've seen a heavy story tonight. And we've reflected on the fact that you are a gracious, you're a merciful God. But we've also learned that wrath and judgment is a reality of your character. And so first and foremost, God, I want to pray for every Christian in the room. And I want to pray that that we would have a fear of the Lord growing in our hearts. And that we would also have an assurance that you love us, a gratitude of the fact that you have saved us. And I want to pray that we would have a love for our community, a desire to tell them about you. And God, I pray for our community. God, we want to see people saved here. We know that your heart is to save. Your heart is to rescue. It's not a heart that that wants justice, judgment. It's a heart that wants salvation. That's why you sent Jesus. And so I pray that many people in our community would see that and would know that. I want to give an opportunity if there's anybody here that even tonight as you've heard this word that God has really spoken to your heart and you believe that you need to put your faith in Jesus, that you've seen the reality of God's judgment, but you also understand that Jesus offers us forgiveness for our sins and salvation from from that judgment. And so I want to just ask you, if there's anyone in here that would say, yeah, Brian, I need to become a Christian tonight. I want to put my faith in Jesus. I want to rededicate my life. I want to get right with God. I just want to ask you to raise your hand in the air if that's you. Is there anyone here who would say that? Our eyes are closed. Our heads are bowed. I see you in the back. Awesome. Thank you. Is there anyone else? Yeah, awesome. Hey, if you raise your hand, I want you to just pray this prayer. Just say, dear God, thank you that you love me. 
Thank you that you made a way to save me. Thank you for Jesus dying on the cross. Help me to follow you. Help me to lead you, or help, help me to get connected to a church that's gonna help me grow. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, I wanna thank you for coming tonight. I know this was a heavy topic, but I believe God is helping our church develop a reverence for him and a heart for the lost. I believe we're gonna have some people who are available to pray. I'll be available to pray as well. Um, and also don't forget, we have our Women's Connection booth in uh, the commons next to the elevator. So ladies, if you want to get connected there, uh, go out and sign up. We love you. Have a wonderful evening. God bless you.